Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. That's where we'll begin this part of our worship. Psalm 2. So good to see you this morning and good to be back with you. We are, we've been out of town for the last several days, actually a little over a week for me, and uh, good to be home, good to be with you again. Good to see we have visitors with us. We want you to know we're glad that you're here. Thank you for visiting. We'd like to get to know you better, and uh, if there's something we can do to help you, Uh, to draw closer to God or some need that brought you here, uh, please let us know about that. If you have one of those cards that we've been passing out to fill out with your name and your uh, information so that we can get back with you, we'd love for you to do that. Just be sure and give that to one of us. But thank you most of all for being here with us this morning. I want to say to the high school and junior high kids, we are having the devotional time for the month at our home tonight at 5 o'clock. So definitely uh, make plans to be there at our house tonight at 5. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In this psalm, the picture is of the rulers and kings of the earth taking their stand against Jehovah and against his king, the Messiah. And God laughs at them. In fact, God establishes the kingdom of the Messiah in response to the threats and opposition of the kings and rulers of the world. So we've been studying this year. We are now in the last month of the year. I know It's the first day of the last month, so that may be a little strange to you, but here we are, the last month of the year, and all year we've been talking about the unstoppable kingdom, how God promised to establish a kingdom and how he did it through Jesus, who came saying the kingdom of heaven is here. And we talked about how that kingdom has different elements, how it is here, and yet there are parts of it that are yet to come, and we'll talk a little bit more about that this morning. But we've discussed how... Satan tried to oppose and stop the kingdom, and he was unsuccessful. We've talked for a series of lessons about how Jesus tried to explain what the kingdom is. And then last month, we talked some about who can enter that kingdom. So what I want to do for this morning is just finish off this series and finish off our year in thinking about the kingdom by talking about what's next. I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about the destiny of the kingdom. Where do we go from here? What's next? What will happen to this movement and to the people of God. And so I want us to just take a few minutes and look both at prophecy that happens in the Old Testament about what the kingdom is going to be and some passages in the New Testament that say, here is what is yet to come. So we're just going to talk in some kind of characteristic terms about the kingdom and what happens from here. The first thing we need to know about the kingdom is that the kingdom lasts forever. Now Psalm 2 refers to this because the opposition of people who try to squash the kingdom fails. And that's fleshed out in great detail in the New Testament. The idea of the kings of the earth gathered together to oppose Jehovah and his Messiah. We know who those names are. We know about Herod and about Pilate, the literal kings of earth who literally try to stop what Jehovah is doing through his son. And yet they fail. So keep reading with me in Psalm 2 and verse 7. In Psalm 2 and verse 7 it says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, there is also this. The kingdom lasts forever. It is an unstoppable kingdom because it conquers other kingdoms. It is eternal in that sense as well. So the psalmist warns, kiss the son or else, bow the knee or else, because Jehovah is establishing his kingdom and it will last forever. Now, there are so many passages here that it would take the rest of our time to do all of the passages. So what I'm going to do is just put several of these on the board, and I hope you'll read it on the board, and you can take these passages home and look at them in more detail on your own time here. This is Psalm 45, 6 and 7. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. New Testament authors, particularly the author of the book of Hebrews, apply this passage to Jesus. Your throne is forever and ever, and God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In Daniel 2 and verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Notice how many different ways Daniel says this kingdom will last forever. It'll never be destroyed. It will not be left to another. It shall stand forever. And in Daniel 7 and verse 14, to him, this is the son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you notice how many different ways he says that? It's an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. It shall not be destroyed. It's as if he is making the point so emphatic that we cannot miss it. This is a kingdom that will always last. And so... When Jesus is born, that the angel Gabriel says to Mary, there will be no end to his kingdom. It will last forever. Now, that may sound like vague prophetic wording. You know, everlasting. That word sometimes gets thrown around a little bit. It'll last forever. We use forever in a different sense today. You know, we say something lasts forever. You know, when the sermon goes for two hours, you know, oh, that lasted forever. Okay, well, not literally, but just felt like it. Okay, so... It lasts forever here is not figurative. It is not an exaggeration. It is a way of saying this will always be true because there will be no opposition to it that will last and because God has done it. So what has begun in Jesus will not be stopped. It will last forever. The second thing I want you to see about the kingdom is that it is full of righteousness. This is one of the characteristics of what God has promised to do in establishing his rule among people, is that this is going to be a new kind of rule, different from what man comes up with on his own. It will be a rule which blesses people because people will now live in a way that is different from the way they would naturally live. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to look at a couple of places here in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. This is another theme in the prophets that really we could wear ourselves out just tracing this idea, what the the nature of the kingdom would be. 
But I believe a few passages here will suffice to make the point. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now I want you to notice, do you notice all the forever markings just in that text talking about the kingdom? Okay, so many things that it says there will be no end, which is also what is said of Jesus by Gabriel. But notice in this text, the point is there is a righteous ruler, the Messiah, who is going to come and establish justice and peace and righteousness. This is David. It says specifically here in verse 7, he'll be on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's centuries after the death of David that this is said, and it's describing a time far in the future of Isaiah. So it is something that is not just about a literal kingdom. It is instead about the Messiah who is going to come and he's going to rule righteously. But not only that, not only is he going to be righteous, but the people will follow him in righteousness. Turn a couple of pages to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. Listen to the description of what what it would be like to live in this kingdom. Isaiah 11 and verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So through this ruler and through his righteous reign, you see that it begins with the Messiah and through the Messiah suddenly things change. And it's described here, some some of the pictures are about animals that are natural enemies or animals that have natural tendencies suddenly completely changing so that there is peace on the earth. And he says that's what it will be like to have righteousness truly reigning in the kingdom God will establish. Turn with me over now to Ezekiel 37. I want to add this other component here, Ezekiel 37, that this is not just about the Messiah forcing the people to live differently. But instead, when God envisions the kingdom, he envisions a different kind of people who will be in the kingdom. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. I want to begin in verse 22. Ezekiel 37, 22, he says, And I will make of them, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. 
And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So David, he says, David, my servant will be their prince, he will be their ruler, their king. So we're speaking of the messianic time. But I want you to notice how he describes his people. My people are not going to defile themselves with idols anymore. They will want to walk in my rules and obey my statutes. They will become a new people. They will be a righteous people. Different ways the prophets describe this. Ezekiel describes it as God taking out a heart of stone, and putting in its place a heart of flesh so that they can feel again and want again and do right again. Jeremiah describes it as, I'm going to make a new covenant. And that new covenant, I'm not going to have to teach them, know the Lord, know the Lord. They'll all know me because I've forgiven all of their sins. It is a new kind of people that God is forging in His kingdom. So, you know, we talked last month. I don't know if you guys remember this. It's been a month. But we talked last month about who enters the kingdom. And we talked about these are people who are obedient. These are people who want to live righteously. They have an allegiance and a commitment to the Lord. Do you want to know why God wanted that? It's because God wanted a kingdom that is full of righteousness, where righteousness abounds. That's why he sent his son to create a new kind of place, people, reign on the earth. I want to take just a moment. I've been asked this question. I was asked this question before we began this year studying the kingdom. And I, I thought this would be a good place to answer the question. Just here, just take a moment or two in the lesson. I've been asked the question, is the kingdom and the church, are those the same thing? I know that from time to time we, we talk about them as the same thing, or at least talk about them in sort of an interchangeable way. I, I would not say that the kingdom and church are the same. The church is the group of people Church's people, the group of people who've been saved by the blood of Jesus. But the kingdom is the reign of God, the rule of God that's been manifested or evidenced in Jesus, but also in the laws and rules of Jesus, in the people of Jesus. And the kingdom is expanding and will continue to expand until everything is conquered. That's the kingdom. And so the kingdom does encompass the church, and yet the kingdom is a bit more than the church. I do think there is quite a bit of overlap there. So when Jesus says, and this is why I bring it up in this point, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33. Seeking first the kingdom is not seek first the church of God or the people of God. It is instead seek first the reign of God and the righteousness of God, what God is doing in this time by bringing his son and by establishing something new. 
Seek that first. Now, does that involve people? Well, sometimes, of course. But it is not primarily about seeking people. It's instead about this idea that the kingdom is full of righteousness and we have to seek that righteousness to live by it because that's what God has wanted to establish since long, long ago, what we're reading about in Isaiah and Ezekiel. So I like to think of it this way. The kingdom of God is God's rule that is growing and expanding through Jesus. Usually the way that expansion takes place is person by person. Person by person, we influence one another and draw one another closer to God. Now, a local church is a place where the kingdom is powerfully seen because people are doing God's will on earth the way it's done in heaven, which is what Jesus says interchangeably with the kingdom coming. People doing God's work, God's will on earth the way it's done in heaven. So, I do believe that the kingdom is more than merely the church. But I do believe there's quite a bit of overlap. However, the point is, and what I want to bring this up for this morning, is that we fulfill God's purpose when we follow Jesus in full submission to the Father. That's what God has always wanted. And part of that is going to mean we cleanse our lives and we focus on God's will for our lives. That's the righteousness God sent his son to accomplish. The third thing I want us to see about the kingdom is that it will conquer all enemies. We need to know that just because the kingdom has been established, which it has, does not mean that that's the end. This is just all there is. Instead, there is a, a conquering and expanding sense to these descriptions of the kingdom in Scripture. Now, we read earlier in Psalm 2 that the Messiah is going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Daniel says this. This is the passage we looked at earlier. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. It will conquer all of these kingdoms. Now, there are two key passages in the Old Testament about this that I want to notice before we get into the New Testament side. This is Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord. I want you to notice the difference. This, this means this is Jehovah, and Lord is just the regular word for Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until you conquer your enemies. So Jehovah is going to give someone this conquering over his enemies. And of course, New Testament writers, Jesus himself, apply this to the Messiah. So this is a description of the kingdom, which will mean conquering enemies. And then this is Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. David writes, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So again, you have that idea of everything under your feet. I am over it. I have conquered it. So, this passage is also going to be used by New Testament writers to describe the Messiah. So, let's look at a couple of passages in the New Testament. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 2 to begin with. So, we have to confess, and this is part of what Hebrews 2 is going to tell us, we have to confess that there are parts of this that we don't yet see having come to pass. So with this passage in your mind, 
we're going to read the Hebrew writer, quote from it, and then explain it a little bit, especially the idea of how we don't see it yet accomplished. Hebrews 2 and verse 5. Hebrews 2 and verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the Hebrew writer quotes from the psalm we just listed. And then he says there in verse 8, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You guys know what that means, right? That's also what we see. We see that Jesus says he's going to rule all nations. He will conquer all enemies. And yet, yet that hasn't fully come to completion yet. There are parts of that we still await. And we're going to talk more about what the enemies specifically are. But there is still evil in the world. There are still people who are in rebellion against Jesus and his messiahship and his rule. And so there is this this contrast between what is promised and what we see. And in fact, he goes into that in verse 9. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, what we see is a disgraced and humiliated Messiah. That's what we see. But he is now crowned with glory and honor, and he is awaiting the fulfillment of that. Put all my enemies under my feet, like you promised. So you want to talk about the destiny of the kingdom. What's next? There are enemies yet to be conquered. And yet there is the assurance that just as surely as God sent Jesus and established his kingdom to begin with, so he will bring to completion and fulfillment by the full conquering of all the enemies. So with that in mind, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be spending the rest of our time in this place. 1 Corinthians 15. This is a chapter about resurrection, and because of that, it has a a next steps kind of feel to it. What comes next? 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits... Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Don't worry, we'll come to that last part in just a few minutes. I know it can be a little subjection confusing. So, 
main thrust of this is just as in Adam everyone died because Adam let sin into the world, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christ brings victory over the death Adam brought. So he is describing here how that all is going to work. Verse 23, let's look at verse 23. It says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. We've talked about the firstfruits before. Uh, firstfruits is the idea, the first part of the harvest that promises there's more to come. Just the first fruits you bring in, but there's more harvest behind it. And so Christ is the first one to rise from the dead, but others will come. Others will come after him. So it's a promise that those who belong to Christ will also be raised. Verse 24, then comes the end. By the way, I think that is a vital wording because what it says is the resurrection happens, then comes the end that there is not some kind of extended timeline in between those two events, the resurrection of the dead and the end in which the kingdom is delivered to God, as we'll talk about. But after destroying every rule and authority, it says, verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So, the kingdom of Jesus is a conquering kingdom. Every enemy, every power will be destroyed. He will conquer it all. And verse 25, it says, He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That takes us back to Psalm 110. It takes us back to Psalm 8. Those two passages we just read that say, He must reign until all enemies are conquered. But we're not just referring to nations as enemies, because look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is also an enemy. And death must be destroyed. How is that going to happen? By a mass resurrection of the dead. Jesus will bring this to pass. So I hope you're beginning to see the shape of the Bible's teaching on the kingdom. Let me spell it out for you. We are given new righteousness. And so we live in that righteousness because Jesus has bought us out of our sins and taught us a new way to live. We are part of the force that helps Jesus conquer his enemies, at least to the best of our ability. We are in the front lines of these battles in which Jesus is king, and yet his kingdom is advancing and growing and conquering. And so Paul writes, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. It is not just people. It is the principalities and powers and the prince of power of the air. Christ is conquering, but Christ is also empowering us to conquer. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that if we fail to conquer in some way, if we don't win these battles, maybe for our own, uh, our own battles with sin, or in trying to engage someone who is a, a servant of Satan, and, and we don't win those, it doesn't mean that Christ fails. Remember, his kingdom is unstoppable. It will never end. It just means that he has confidence in us to put us in a role that is of pivotal importance to the advance of his kingdom. So, I just want to take a moment and process that with you, that the kingdom will conquer all its enemies. I think that's an important thing for Christians to remember as we live in a world that looks like it's in moral freefall. It looks like the wrong things are winning and progressing. But don't you think that is always the way God's people have felt? You take, go back to the time of Habakkuk 
or you go back to the time of Jeremiah, or you go back even in the time of Jesus. You talk about the time of Revelation. Always there is this sense that it looks like the world is winning, and yet we can have confidence in the promises God has made because God keeps his word. And so again, we have to say the kingdom of God will conquer its enemies because God said it would. And so we are now engaged in the progress of that kingdom. And the last thing I want to say about the destiny of the kingdom is that ultimately it will be delivered to the Father. So let's look again at this text we've just examined. In verse 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So the delivering of the kingdom to God the Father after the destruction of all enemies. 4.25, he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death itself is going to be destroyed. Now, this part I said we would explain a little bit. We need to read it 27 and 28. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, that's a quotation from Psalm 8. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So he's talking about God there. God put everything under the Messiah's feet. And he's saying, well, when he says he put everything, he doesn't mean himself. God is still God. So verse 28 then says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him to put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The idea here is that Jesus is also going to submit himself to the Father. The kingdom will be delivered to the Father. Jesus will submit to the Father. And everything will go back to, quote, unquote, normal. Everything will be complete. So what we're saying here is, when the kingdom will be delivered to the Father, is that the kingdom is how God is fixing everything that's broken in the world. The kingdom is how the rebellion that began in the garden will be finished. He has ensured that the kingdom will be permanent. His sacrifice and his teaching ensure that the kingdom will be full of righteousness. His power and his authority ensure that all enemies, even death itself, Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God will be defeated. And then he delivers the kingdom to the Father so that the reconciliation is complete. Now, if you want to ask me and you want to come quiz me about, well, what does that look like? Tell me all the steps. You know, where we at in that process, uh, you're going to get a blank stare from me. I don't have good answers for those questions. What I can tell you is that's going to happen. It will be delivered to the Father. So... The question then is, if we, if we learn all this about the kingdom, it lasts forever, it's full of righteousness, it will conquer all enemies, it'll be delivered to the Father. The question is, what, what do we learn from this, and what can we take away, you and me, on a practical level? And really, I, I would just say, these are the things I want you to take away from the whole year's worth of studies that we've been doing on the kingdom. The first is this. Knowing the destiny of the kingdom gives us confidence. I really think we need this. The kingdom will never be destroyed. It will always stand. Enemies will attack it, but they will not succeed. The kings of the earth will take their stand, and God will laugh at them. That means culture will not stop the kingdom of God. Modern life will not stop the kingdom of God. Persecution will not stop the kingdom of God. Changing morality will not stop the kingdom of God. People who suddenly don't seem as interested in the gospel will not stop the kingdom of God. We need to know that because those things worry us and trouble us. And yet, 
what we're really saying when we are worried and troubled and think that maybe, maybe we should reconsider everything. What we're really saying is, I'm not sure God could handle this. We need to remember, God's word and God's promises have existed and lasted and come true through lots more societies than just ours. And they have been true for much longer than our lifetimes. And we can be confident in those things. I need to be confident in the power of God to preserve his people and to continue to reign. I need to be confident that the gospel is everything God wants and intends it to be. I need to be confident that the kingdom is unstoppable. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't stoppable. We certainly are stoppable. We are weak and insufficient. We have bad ideas, but our confidence comes in Christ. Knowing the destiny of the kingdom gives us hope that there's more to life than just what we see, that there are happier endings than maybe what we are expecting to naturally occur. In the face of a culture that is struggling and languishing, we find hope in Christ. We're able to face death with hope. We're able to face life with hope. Not suddenly hoping or hoping that suddenly everything will just dramatically improve for no real reason. Because after all, that is the source of a lot of the malaise in our time. No, this is hope that God will fulfill his promises and God will do what is best. We have come to trust and know God. And what we trust God about, what we know about God, is that God wants good for his people. We know that most of all because there is a blood-stained cross that tells us forever God wants what's best even if it hurts him. And so when we, give, when we see these promises God has given us, they give us a confidence, but more than that, they give us an anticipation of something better that we don't yet see. I know that sin will not have the last laugh, and I know that God will bring ultimate justice on those who deserve it, and yet that God will have mercy. I know that there will be a happy ending to all of the sadness that I see, and I need that. I need that hope to continue in life. Knowing the destiny of the, of the kingdom gives us confidence and hope, but it also gives us a sense of responsibility. I hope you feel this, that this is not just something that's happening outside of us. It is something that's happening through us. Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know that is a, a promise, that is a hope that Jesus wants to be lived out in every one of our lives, that we do God's will the way it's done in heaven? That here on earth, here in this local church, here in this community, God's will will be done on earth the way it's done in heaven. We have a responsibility to that. How are we battling against Satan and his forces, the forces that oppose God? If God's goodness and righteousness are spreading, the question then is, well, what am I spreading? How am I influencing others? What am I teaching? How am I living? The kingdom doesn't hinge on me, but I do have a role in spreading the message of Jesus. So that should give us a sense. What am I doing and what is my part in the spread of the kingdom of God? I hope these studies have helped you. I, I believe they've helped me to have a grander per picture of the purposes of God, what God is doing and what God wants from me. And it might be that there's someone here this morning
who is ready to become a part of that kingdom, the people of God who've been set aside because they serve the Messiah and have been given a righteousness that is not their own, and they have hope of eternal life because of what Jesus has done and what he will do in resurrecting us from the dead and in bringing an end to all those enemies and to finally giving us eternal life with the Father. And if you're ready to put your faith in Jesus and to have that hope of eternal life for yourself, if you're ready to turn away from your sins and to be baptized into Christ and have his blood wash your sins away, we'd love nothing more than to help you be right with God. Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.